Well, well, good morning, good morning, everybody. Welcome to, welcome to Unraveling the Words of Yahweh. My name is Kevin Eitner. So glad to have you tuning in this morning. Oh, mercy sakes. Hey, we're in this, this book of Revelation, or, or as I like to say, the Apocalypse of Yeshua Messiah. And there's no doubt about it that uh, John, John wrote this, John the Beloved there, there in, uh, well, uh, anywhere from 95, 96, 97 A.D., uh, far later than what the Prietus, uh try to tell us of 70 A.D. And even, uh, it was funny, I was watching uh, uh, Ancient Aliens Friday night, and they brought up about John on the island of Patmos there in 70 A.D. And now, now unfortunately, it, uh, they got that one wrong. Uh, so anyway, we, we we're in this book of Revelation, and we're in this chapter 11. And we're talking about the two witnesses. In our last study, we've seen these two witnesses come to the power to inflict judgments on mankind. As in the forms of fire being cast out of their mouths. And the fact that if any man will attempt to hurt them, that the two witnesses have the power to kill those individuals. Also, we read about the power to shut up heaven that ceases the rain to fall upon the earth and having that same power to turn water in the blood. But but uh, I want you to hold on. Hold on for a second now. You know, over the years, if you're long-time listeners, you've heard me talk about the positives and negatives contained within the scriptures. Well, I believe that we have another one of these positives and negatives. In Revelation chapter 13, beginning with verse 13, we read about that false prophet. As I read those scriptures, I want you to see if you pick up on the negative of what the two witnesses of chapter 11 are doing. Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. And I beheld another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. Now, this is the religious beast. Now, I want you to stay focused on here. We're talking about the two witnesses there in Jerusalem. Here in chapter 13, verse 11, we're now talking about the religious beast. But when we get back into chapter 11, verse 7, we're going to see the bottomless pit, the beast from the bottomless pit. So you got all this going on. So you got you to pay attention to what's going on. And, and Sarah, verse 12. And he, this religious beast, exercises all the power of the first beast. That's the political beast. Before him and causes the earth and them which dwell thereon to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. All right. So we see that this, this big religious beast system is going to favor the political system. Verse 13. Now let's sharpen up. And he doeth, this is the religious beast, and he doeth great wonders, so that he, the religious beast, maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Verse 14. And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, 
that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. Now, did you catch the negative there in verse 13? And he, the religious beast, doeth great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. As the two witnesses are shutting the doors in heaven, there in Revelation chapter 11, verse 6, we see the false prophet is calling for fire to come down from heaven. Now, what's so interesting to me is the fact that the two witnesses are closing the door for the rains from heaven. The false prophet is calling for fire in which the earth will be dry from no rain, therefore the fire will be at a greater risk to the elements on this earth, especially in the area of Jerusalem. Now, this is the negative now. Now, I want to pick up, I want to show you something else here in this Revelation chapter 11. Now, we just talked about the false prophet. All this is going on at one time. I want to go, I want to reread verse 6 here. These have the power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of the prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all the plagues as often they will. So what we got here is we got this, folks, this is a supernatural spiritual battle going on between heaven and hell. And you and I are caught in the crossfire of this. What we're seeing here is we as this temple that Donald Trump and all these, these so-called Zioners are so eager to build. As you got this, this the, the two witnesses walking the earth, prophesying, doing their miracles, you've got this false prophet. He's standing up defending the political beast, of the beast of, of, of Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. And as these, as these two witnesses are, are shutting the heavens up with rain, these two, uh, the false prophet, he's calling for fire. Well, let me ask you something. How do you put out fire? Well, you put fire out with water. But hold on a second. Hold on a second. What did the two witnesses do? And have power over waters to turn them to blood. And to smite the earth with all the plagues as often as they will. We come to the realization that these two witnesses will be supernaturally translated into heaven eventually. And in similar fashion, you will recall that neither Eliah nor Moses died a normal death. But Eliah was taken into heaven in a fiery chariot, and Yahweh himself buried Moses, secretly disposing of his body, which, by the way, Satan is still disputing according to the book of Jude. So again, we see that Yahweh will supernaturally intervene with the departure of these two witnesses, even as he did with Moses and Eliah. But we have to keep in mind that the text does not specifically identify them, so we cannot be firm on their identity, but only speculate 
who these men might be. And we'll know. We'll know them when they see them. When we see them. Folks, we are living in some exciting times. You literally are seeing prophecy unravel in front of you. You know, to give you a little time set, you, you, you remember the charts? I'm trying to trying to set this book of Revelation. Not to what how the churches or how man teaches it, but how it is according to the word of Yahweh. You, you remember the chart that we did, and on the right side of the chart we put war in heaven, great words, abomination of desolation, three and one half years, and saints killed. Then a top of, a, 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 on the top across from our chart, we put the following verses. Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. Revelation chapter 13, verses 5 through 7. Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 and 12. Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Matthew chapter 24, 15 through 21. Daniel chapter 12, with, along with Revelation chapter 10. How about Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 to 12. All these events, all those scriptures taking place at one time. This is why it's so important that, that we literally unravel the scriptures of Yahweh. We analyze and look what's going on. Who do you who before you be, who do you think the two witnesses were were uh, uh, going against? Well, the false prophet, the false Messiah, the Antichrist. That set up that temple there in Jerusalem. You see, that we, we, we come to this uh, uh, verse 7. And as I mentioned in our last study, the completion of their testimony in the following verses of 7 to 14 marks a distinct portion of their history and description is given here. It is strongly emphasized, as is the nature of it. This is shown by the beautiful structure that set it forth. There's three things that are shown in to characterize the completion of their testimony. We read there in verses 7 through 10, their sufferings. Verses 11 and 12, the reward. Verse 13, their avengement. Verse 7, listen very carefully now. As we get into this chapter 11. And when they, the two witnesses, shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascended out of the bottomless pit, that, that's back in chapter 9, shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. But take notice. I, you see, words mean things. And when they shall have finished. 
the shell half finished is up to our Heavenly Father, folks. Professor Stewart states this, and whenever they shall have finished their testimony, the reference is undoubtedly to a period when they shall have faithfully borne the testimony. That's to say the gospel of Yeshua Messiah, which they were appointed to bear. The word rendered her shall have finished in the Greek is telososin. It's from teleo. It means properly to end, to finish, to complete, to accomplish. It is used in this respect in two sentences, or two senses. Either in regard to time or in regard to the end of the object in view. In the sense of perfecting it or accomplishing it. The former sense is employed in such passages as the following. Till a thousand years should be fulfilled there in Revelation chapter 20 verse 3. Ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel, Greek. Ye shall not have finished the cities of Israel until the Son of Man come. There in Matthew chapter 10, verse 23. That is, ye shall not have finished passing through them when Yeshua Messiah had made an end, Greek finished, of commending his 12 disciples. Paul says, I have finished my course, teleos. In these passages, it clearly refers to time. In either sense, it's used in such places as the following, and it shall not, and shall not the uncircumcision which is by nature if fulfilled by the law, there in Romans two twenty seven. That is, if it accomplish or come up to the demands of the law. You see here, we have to watch Satan. If you go back. The verse 3. It reads, And I will, I will, Yahweh, Yeshua Messiah, the Et, the great I am, the Alpha and Omega. I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days, cloth and sackcloth. That's when they shall finish their testimony. Not before. You got to keep in mind. As these two witnesses are walking the streets of Jerusalem. Chaos. Total chaos. You know. Let me give you a little. Try to try to give you a little picture. If you follow the news. And you've seen the battle between Russia and Ukraine. And you see all the bombings there in Ukraine. And all it's just what, what's happening over there. Imagine what these two witnesses are going to go through. As they're prophesying the testimony of the gospel of Yeshua Messiah. In the streets of Jerusalem. Be causing the heavens to shut up. No rain. Satan's demonic entities trying to destroy these two witnesses. They're dodging bullets or they're looking behind them all the time. You see, folks, this is where faith comes in.
You remember the story I was reading the other day as I, as I read my Bible every day. I was reading the other day about when Yeshua Messiah told the disciples, we shall cross to the other side of the sea. And he's laying down there in the bottom of the ship sleeping and the winds come up. The waters are white capping. It's getting rough. If you've ever been out in the ocean, you know what I'm talking about. The big swells. And the, the disciples start to panic. Master, master. But wait a minute. He told him before they left the shoreline, we shall cross over to the other side. See, there's where the faith comes in, folks. This is where you and I need to stand up. They proclaim our faith, the gospel, the testimony, as these two witnesses are preparing to do. Talks about the beast. This is the first time in the book of Revelation in which what's called the beast is mentioned, and which has so important an agency in the events which it is said would occur. It is reportedly mentioned in the course of the book and always with similar characteristic as referring to the same object. Of the book. Here it's mentioned as ascending out of the bottomless pit. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, it's rising out of the sea. We see the other beast system coming up out of the earth there in verse 11 of chapter 13. The word used here is theron. It means a beast, a wild beast. Check out Mark chapter 1, Acts chapter 10, 11, 28, Hebrews 12, James 3, Revelation chapter 6. It is once used tropically of brutal or savage men. They're in Titus chapter 1, verse 12. Elsewhere in the passages, as above referred to the apocalypse, it is used symbolically. As employed in the book of Revelation, the apocalypse of Yeshua Messiah. Now, the characteristics of the beast are strongly marked. It has its origin from beneath, the bottomless pit, the sea, the earth. It has great power. It claims and receives worship. It has a, a certain seat or throne from where its power proceeds. It's of scarlet color there in Revelation chapter 17, verse 3. It receives power confirmed upon it by the kings of the earth. It has a mark by which it is known. It has a certain number. That is, there are certain mystical letters or figures which so express its name that it be made known. As we get in that Revelation chapter 13. These things serve to characterize the beast that distinguish from all other things. They are so numerous and definite that it would seem to have intended to make it easy to understand what is meant when the power referred to it should appear. In regard to the origin of the imagery here, there can be no reasonable doubt that it is to be traced to Daniel. And the writer he means to describe the same beast which Daniel refers to there in Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. The evidence of this must be clear to anyone who will compare the description in Daniel 7, 
with the minute details in the book of Revelation. No one, I think, can doubt that John means to carry forward the description given in Daniel and to apply it to a new manifestations of this of the same great and terrific power, the power of the fourth monarchy on this earth. It ascends us out of the bomb's pit. I made reference. Let me turn there. Chapter nine. Listen up, verse one. Uh, verse one, chapter nine. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bomb's pit. And he opened up the bottomless pit, and there rose a smoke out of the bottomless pit, as the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. We see here this would properly mean that its origin is in the underworld, or that it would have characteristics that will show that it was from beneath. You remember... You remember a while back in one of our prior studies, our discussion on Horus Nimrod, the god of the underworld? The meaning clearly is that what did the beast symbolize would have such characteristics as to show that it was not of divine origin, but it had its source in, in the world of darkness, sin, and death. This, of course, could not represent the true church or any civil government that's founded on the principles that Yahweh approves. But if it represents a community pretending to be a church, it is apostate church. If a civil community, it's a community of characteristics of which are the spirit that rules over the world beneath controls it. For reasons which we shall see in abundance in applying the descriptions that occur of this beast. We read there in chapter 13, verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea. That chapter 13 is very interesting. Can't wait to get there. We're going to talk about that, that beast, same beast system. We're talking about a beast system, by the way. A beast system. You know, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I, I, I'm setting the foundation. I want to reread chapter 13, verse 1. And I, John, stood upon the sand of the sea. Sea is what? Water? And I saw a beast rise up out of the sea. Well, hold on a second here. Let's go back to the two prophets, or to the two witnesses. In verse 6, and they have power over the waters to turn them to blood. So, in that chapter 13 there, when we get there, is this a sea of water or a sea of blood? Interesting thought. One thing we know for, that this beast system shall make war against the two witnesses. They will endeavor to exterminate them by force. 
This is clearly is not intended to be a general statement that they would be persecuted, but to refer to the particular manner in which the opposition would be conducted. It would be in the form of a war, a war against these two witnesses. That is, there would be an effort to destroy them by arms. This is, I, I find this really interesting, this supernatural. Because right here in America, you look around and, and, and you witness murders. I mean, we, we had one up here to Georgetown with the, the uh, just last week. I believe it was like a 20-year-old. Two men, they finally caught the two men, they killed them. You see how easy it is to take the life of somebody? But here we see that these two witnesses... For three and a half years, evilness will be after to kill them, but not until they have finished their work. That's faith. Can you say they have their gospel armor on? You bet they do. And shall overcome them, yeah. They shall gain the victory over them, conquer them. Nikesia, in the Greek there, that is, there will be some signal victory in which those represented by the two witnesses will be subdued. And eventually, they will kill them. That is, an effect will be produced as if they were to be put to death. They would be overcome, would be silenced, and would be apparently dead. This would properly represent any event that would cause them to cease to bear testimony as if they were dead. It would not be not necessary to suppose that they would be literally death in the ease, but there would be some event which would be well represented by death, such as an entire suspension of their prophesizing and the conquest of force. You know, I find it Satan. We see that the deaths, the assassination, this is, this is what it's going to be like for these two witnesses. We can think of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And how our, our government, our government carried it out, there's no doubt about it. We see the death of uh, Princess Diana. It was no accident. Come on, folks, really. I can't imagine that these two witnesses, what they will be focusing, what they, they will be thinking of as they go around, proclaiming their testimony day in and day out for three and a half years. This shows that these witnesses are upon the earth during the 13th chapter and that the, that the beast is on the earth during the 11th chapter. The account of the rise of the beast is postponed until chapter 13, but his actual revelation must already have taken place a long time before. The events recorded in the 12th chapter must also have taken place. We must remember, therefore, that when we come to chapter 12, we are chronologically taken back and told what we will previously happen. Just as the author today takes us by one line of events up to a certain point, then goes back, and by another line of events reaches the same point again. All through these judgment scenes, or at any rate the greater part of them, the beast is on the earth. It's against him and his forces. The plagues of the seals and the trumpets are directed. This fact is often overlooked in the interpretation of chapters 6 through 11. 
but it must be allowed its full weight in our present consideration of the apocalypse. It is clear from this verse that the whole period of their testimony will be at the end, that which is here said shall take place. So we have seen their magnificent ministry. Notice, secondly, their morbid death in verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Once again, now this is the first time that we're introduced to the beast in the apocalypse. The beast, Therion, Therion in the Greek. It is, it's a term describing a, a vicious carnivore. It describes a beast of a prey like a lion or a tiger. It has within its emphasis of, of a starving Kavanaugh with, with, with the star, starving appetite that functions solely on the basis of his impossibly cruel and brutal nature. This is a now a reference to the Antichrist who would be called the beast 36 times in the book of the Revelation. And we will study this in detail in chapters 13 as well as 17. This Therion, this beast. Once, once again, we, we don't, we can't overlook facts, folks. I want you to notice once again, it comes out of the abyss. The term abyss is mentioned seven times in the book of Revelation. As you will recall when we studied it in chapter 9 in the context of the fifth trumpet. This refers to the mysterious subterranean cavern on earth that extends into the bowels of the earth through some kind of shaft that Yahweh has sealed shut for the purpose of incarcerating the very worst of the worst of the vile demons. Now this is not Satan. Satan is represented by a, dra a dragon in Revelation, but rather a man, a type of Horus or Nimrod. As we see more of this goes time goes on and on. A man who is empowered by the demonic forces that come out of this from this abyss. So, so we learn that after the divinely decreed duration of the ministry here for the two, these two witnesses, Yahweh allows the Antichrist to finally overcome them and kill them to the utter triumph of the world. That's to say the new world order. You know, we look at this, and we talk about this subterranean, this Horus and Nimrod. Many times I've spoken about what takes place down there in Washington, D.C., especially down there around the Washington Monument. That, that Washington Monument is an obelisk. It's a phallus. You hear me talk about it there in the Greek mythology and what it stands for. Horus, the god of the underworld. Lady Columbia, Isis on top of the dome. The dome there in the capital is her womb. And this is what these lunatic political leaders believe. That when the, when the, when the bodies of those deceased are laid in the capital, they, they're, they're laid in the womb of Isis, Lady Columbia. In Horus, the god of the underworld, that beast that arises out of, out of the pits of hell, when the spirit goes up 
through the washing of the monument, which is a phallus. It goes up, it brings life, and it sends that 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 spirality radio wavelength frequency over there to Lady Columbia. And Lady Columbia, which is ice, is standing on the dome. She inhales that, and it goes down into her womb, and it brings life back to those dead bodies. This is what we're talking about here, this supernatural, folks. This is what these people believe. The gods of the underworld. You see, they hate Christians. Oh, they despise us. Despises. Especially those of us that go out and preach the Gospels. Presenting the truth, the testimony of Yeshua Messiah. That he lives. And he lives forever. And there's a time that we'll all live with him. They hate us. They want to quiet us. They want to shut us up. Did little side note. Did, did you happen to catch Ted Cruz talking to the, the head of the uh, Department of Justice, Garland? Did, check it out, man. And, and Ted Cruz... He attacks Garland, and he asks Garland what he has against the, the, the Catholic Church, the Catholic people, Christians, and how uh, uh, Garland of the, of the Department of Justice sent in 24 to 36 SWAT agents into this family because they were speaking out against the abortions. This guy happened to be a, a, a some, I believe he was a counselor. So we can send in 24 to 36 heavenly armed SWAT team for one man, his wife, and I believe six children. But we can't find Antifa, the Black Lives Matter, the ones that are going out doing all these bombs. We can't find them. We got their faces on video, but we can't find them. You see how liberals, I don't, you know, don't tell me you're a liberal and you're a Christian. It won't fly, folks. I don't want to, don't even bother calling me. You cannot be a Christian and be a liberal. No way. Sorry about it, Jesse Jackson. Uh, that other lunatic up there out of New York. It, 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 you, nope, can't happen. You cannot be a liberal and a Christian. I'm sorry, can't, it, it's not it. That scripture doesn't doesn't tell me so, folks. It's going to get. We're, we live in exciting times. I want to tell you what. It's going to be turbulent times. Truly, it is. Verse eight. And their dead bodies, these two witnesses, shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Well, we know where that is. That's Jerusalem. The dead bodies. The two fallen in one cause are considered as one. 
The words show lie are supplied by the translators, but not improperly. They're corpses upon the street of the great city. The meaning is that there will be a state of things in regard to them, which will be well represented by supposing them to lie unburied. To leave a body unburied is to treat it with contempt among the ancients. Nothing was regarded as more dishonorable than such treatment. Among the Jews also it was regarded as special indignity to leave a dead unburied. And here they were always represented as deeply solicited to the uh, secure the interment of the dead bodies. For three days, they're laying there. They're laying there in, in that great city. Eight times, eight times in Revelation, elsewhere it's used of Babylon. In chapter 14, 16, 17, 18. In, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 10, as the new Jerusalem. Matter of fact, we read in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 8, and many nations shall pass by this city, and they shall say every man to his neighbor, Wherefore hath Yahweh done this unto the great city? You see, Jerusalem will have been rebuilt only again to be destroyed. In Isaiah chapter 25, in verses 1 through 9, we read, O Yahweh, thou art my Elohim. I will exalt thee. I will praise thy name, for thou hast done wonderful things. Thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. For thou hast made a city and heap of a defense city of ruin." A palace of strangers to be no city. It shall never be rebuilt. Therefore shall the strong people glorify thee. The city of terrible nations shall fear thee. For thou hast been a strength to the poor. A strength to the needy in his distress. A refuge from the storm. A shadow from the heat. When the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. Thou shalt bring down the noise of strangers as the heat in a dry place, even the heat with the shadow of a cloud. The branch of the terrible ones shall be brought low. And in this mountain shall Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh Sabbath, Make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of morrow, of wines on lees will refine, and he will destroy in this mountain the face of the, the covering cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up in victory. Yahweh Elohim will wipe away tears from all the faces. And the rebuke of his people shall he take away from all the earth. For Yahweh has spoken it. And it shall be in that day, lo, this is our Elohim, our creator. We have waited for him. And he will save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. 
Here then in the street of the great city, Jerusalem, these two witnesses will be slain. And Psalm 79 will receive its fulfillment for his very time that it refers. O Elihim, the heathen are come into thy inheritance. Thy holy temple have they defiled. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps. The dead bodies of thy servants have they given to be meat under the fowls of the heaven. The flesh of thy saints under the beast of the earth. Their blood have they shed like water on every side of Jerusalem. And there was none to bury them. The whole psalm should be read in this connection. As well in Psalms 9 and 10. Which relate to these very times of trouble. When the wicked man or the man of the earth oppresses and slays the saints of Eliam. He talks here. The city. Which. The city which namely spiritually in a spiritual sense. In the Greek here it's pneumatikos. The word occurs only in one other place in the New Testament. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Because they are spiritually discerned. Where it means in accordance with the Holy Spirit or through the aid of the Holy Spirit. However, here it seems to be used in a sense of metaphorically or allegorically in contradiction from the literal and real name. Sodom. The very term applied by Isaiah chapter 1 verse 10. Uh, to apostate Jerusalem. Check out also uh, uh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter, uh, I believe it's 16 verse 48. Sodom was distinguished for its wickedness. And especially for the, for the associate to which the abominations have given name. For the character of some, and we so uh, Sodom, we read there in Genesis chapter eighteen, verse twenty, and Yahweh said, "Because because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous." If we compare that verse to what Peter read there, uh, there in Second Peter chapter two, verse six, and the turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. In acquiring what city is referred to, it would be necessary to find in such abominations as characterized as Sodom, or so much wickedness that it would be proper to call it Sodom. In Genesis chapter 19, verse 1, We read, And there came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them. And he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night. Wash your feet, and you shall rise up early. Go your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. I find this interesting here. 
What do I find so interesting? Here in this chapter 19, we see these two angels. In Revelation chapter 11, we have two witnesses. These two angels here in chapter 19 in Genesis, they come into Sodom. These two witnesses compare Jerusalem to Sodom. This is why John says Sodom and Egypt. And he pressed upon them greatly. And they turned in unto them and entered into his house. And he made them a feast and did bake unleavened bread. And they did eat. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, come past the house around, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. They circled. <laughs> like, like the SWAT team I just talked about. Circled that house. And they called on the lot. And they said unto him. Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out unto us. That we may know them. Now. In the Hebrew manuscripts, we're not talking about having a little city-town council getting to know them. This phrase here that we may know them is in a sexual manner. That's right. That's right. That's what they want. They, this, the, the town folks, the men in the town, They wanted to sodomize these two men, these two angels. Know them how? Not who they were or from where they came and, and what their business was, nor did they pretend anything of this kind to hide or cover their design from Lot. But they were open and disrespectful and declared their sin without shame and, and blushing, which is their character, as we read there in, in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 9. The show of their countenance doth witness against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. Woe unto their soul. For they have rewarded evil to themselves. Therefore, the meaning was here in Genesis 19 was that they might commit that unnatural sin with them, that they were addicted to and common was used and from which they to them from this day bears the name of sodomy as lawful have sex with a man's wife is modesty expressed by knowing her as we read there in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 so this unlawful and shocking of man having sex with man is expressed by the phrase that this was their meaning is plain from Lot's answer to them in verse 8 Behold, now, I have two daughters, which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and do to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing, for therefore they came under the shadow of my roof. You know, we see these, these churches today. Are getting so liberal. It, 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 it saddens me. It just saddens me. I want to go to Acts real quick. Acts chapter 1. 
I'm I'm sorry, not at Romans, Romans chapter one. And I want you to listen to what Paul said. I want to pick it up. Let's see, somewhere around verse fifteen, I believe. Let's see. Uh, uh let's see. Now pick it up, verse seventeen. Romans chapter 1. For therein is the righteousness of Yahweh revealed from faith to faith. It is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of Yahweh is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of Yahweh is manifest in them, for Yahweh hath showed it unto them. In other words, what he's saying here is, all your ministers standing in the pulpit, all those ministers, they were shown the gospel, the testimony, that these two witnesses are preparing to show there in the streets of Jerusalem. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power, and Godhead, so that they were without excuse. These these pulpit, there's no excuse. The blasphemy that we see in these churches today, there are no excuse. They weren't taught this. Because that when they knew Yahweh, they glorified him. Not as Yahweh, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. Their foolish heart was darkened. They allowed liberalism to come into the pulpits. Once you allowed Freemasons to standing in your pulpits, they worship Lucifer. Now, these 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 uh, ministers standing in the pulpits, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They became morons. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible Yahweh into an image made like a corruptible man, into an icon, to birds and the four-footed beasts and creeping things. Verse 24. Wherefore Yahweh also gave them up to the uncleanliness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Who changed? Listen, this is what this is what's happening in the churches today. Who changed the truth of Yahweh into a lie and worship and serve the creature man more than the creator who is blessed forever amen for this cause for this reason this is the read because this is why Yahweh so angry Yahweh gave them up into vile affections for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. Verse 27. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of a woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working, that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense their era which was meant. In verse 28, 
and even as they did not like to retain Yahweh in their knowledge. This is why Yahweh is aggravated with the churches today. Because the, they, they, the churches have gotten away from his word. They followed the creature, the, the man, the, the creator. So, I find this, what I find interesting here, as we read here in this chapter, in this chapter, Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, which spiritually is called Sodom. Now, even though it says spiritually here, all right, we look at it physically. Now, I'm not going to read the articles. But we're talking about these two witnesses over in Jerusalem, okay? I want to share some headlines with you. Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv, officially the gay capital of Israel. Another article. Israel is the gayest country on earth. Now, I find this interesting because if this was, if, if the book of Revelation, Apocalypse of Yeshua Messiah was wrote in 97 AD, and they're already calling Jerusalem, John is Sodom. We've got the headlines. Gay Israel Travel Guide, Gay Friendly. The next world gay capital, Tel Aviv. And I can go on and on. You get the picture? Now do you know why they were called Sodom? Listen up, folks. There's nothing new under the sun. Yahweh knew this. He knows everything. Egypt. He says here, the Jews habitually sin was to lean upon. Egypt is always symbolic of bondage. Therefore, those in charge of Jerusalem will be keeping the people spiritually bonded. And now, in my little nutty world, I ask myself, why would Yahweh make mention of Egypt? What does Egypt have to do with the two witnesses that are proclaiming the gospel of Yeshua Messiah? Well, then it struck me. Freemasonry. You see, Freemasonry is made up of Egyptian uh, religion. Now, in my, in my notes here, I want to turn to an article. By Ed Decker. It's called J. Bull on or J. Bell on the God of Freemasonry. About the supposed name, I'm going to read right from Mr. Decker's article here. About the supposed name of God that's found on the Royal Arch Degree of the York Rite. We find this on page 161 of the ritual published and printed by the Grand Chapter of Tennessee Royal Arch Masons. The same matter we find the three sides of the T on the top of the A, the words J-B-O. You see, each is the name of a deity. 
J is in the Syriac, B in the Chaldaic, and O in the Egyptian languages, as hardly been already explained. Henry Wilson Coyle has this to say, Yah Bel On appeared in the American ritual of the Royal Arts degree on the supposition that Yah was the Syriac name of God, Baal or Baal is the Chaldean, and On the Egyptian. But the last name seems to have been due to mistake of the ritualistic, for it was actually the name of a city, the era having arisen from the biblical story that Pharaoh gave Joseph for wife, Asenoth, who was the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, meaning the priest of the city of On, not the god On. Yah is calmly accepted, the abbreviation for the Hebrew name of our true and living God, Lord God Jehovah. Had the royal arts decree ritualist been content solely with this name, it would have shown at least an indication that the York Rite Masonry is indeed serious about its connection, that it's focused on the true and living God of the Bible. However, with the interjection of the lost word as being Yah Bull On, the York Rite Masonry in, the, in its royal art degree is simply reaffirming all of Masonry's polarlistic nature. The York Rite Masonry include the name Baal is relatively easy to trace. In Judges chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, and that children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them. And they bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord. Now listen very carefully. Listen up. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. Now, Ashtaroth. Ishtar. This is where we get the word Easter from. So we see that they serve Baal and Ishtar, Ashtaroth. Easter. You see, folks, Easter is a pagan holiday. In his commentary on Judges chapter 2, Charles Ryrie has this to say. Baal, the reign and the fertility god of the Canaanites. In the plural, Baals may include all the feasts or, or all the false deities of the land. And Albert Mackey's revised Encyclopedia of Freemasonry, Volume 1, page 114, Mr. Mackey makes the, a definite division between Baal, which, according to him, means Lord or Master in the Hebrew and the Lord God Jehovah. Whenever the Israelites made one of their almost periodical deflections to idolatry, Baal seems to have been the favorite idol to, to whose worship they addicted themselves. Hence, he became the special object of denunciation with the prophets. The prophets. We see this. The term on requires a little bit more research. In Genesis chapter 41, verse 45, we find this. The pharaoh named Joseph, Zephian Penin, that having given him 
Azenoth, the daughter of Paparet, priest of On. Rari's commentary on this verse tells us more. In order to Egyptize Joseph, Pharaoh gave him an Egyptian name and an Egyptian wife. The meaning of his Egyptian name is uncertain. Azenath means she belongeth to Neth, a goddess of the Egyptians. On in the city of uh, Heliopolis is a center for the worship of the sun god Ra. Potiphar and Potiphar are the same in Egyptian, leading some to believe that one was slightly changed. So we find that when you break all this down, in the Herolimusanic Bible, on means strength and light. So what's the significance of this name in masonry? This is a significant word in the royal arch masonry and refers to the city of On in Egypt and indirectly to the sun god Ra, who represented to the Egyptian much the same conception of deity as represented by the name of Jehovah among the Hebrews. The city of On was the chief seat of the worship of the god Ra. So we have that. Now do you understand why it was called that? I can also go to another article. Osiris and Isis. Keep in mind that what we have, we have great, great many ministers, reverends, pastors, standing in the pulpit claiming to be Christians, but they worship Yahbul on instead. This is why he called it Egypt. Called Egypt Jerusalem. Because spiritually they were in bondage. They were under that Luciferian dialectical system. He, John gives us another clue. Where our Lord was crucified, this identifies the city as Jerusalem. Even though the Lord may have been crucified outside the city. Our Lord. How sad it is. How sad. So jealous is the Holy Spirit over his words that he effectually prevents any allegory interpretation here. Lest anyone should for a moment think he meant Sodom and Egypt. He not only says that only spiritually called by these names, but also immediately adds where the Lord also was crucified. Yet in spite of this interpreters, for an example, Alfred says not Jerusalem, which is never called by the city, the great city. But it is so called in Nehemiah there, Alfred. You compare Jeremiah chapter 5. Jerusalem is also compared to the Sodom there in Isaiah chapter 1, chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 23. And in the Song of Moses, which refers to the very times there in Deuteronomy chapter 32. It's also spiritually linked to Egypt in Ezekiel chapter 23. Verses 3, 4, 8, 19. Because of the adoption of the custom in the vices of Egypt. You could say you could say United States of America. United States of America is no different than Sodom and Egypt. Look around us. Look what our political leaders are trying to do. You want a prime example of what's going to happen there, there in Revelation chapter 13? Look at the United States of America. 
We got a beast system rising up out of the sea. You, do you understand why where Washington, D.C. is? Do you understand why our global fathers, I say global because France and England, they were part of this, why they picked that certain area right there at the Y of the two rivers? Think about it. The new birth. They wanted to use a phoenix instead of an eagle. Phoenix of Egypt. You get out and Washington Monument. Get out and Washington Mall. Get out and Washington Mall. Is there anything Christianity down there? No. All you see is a bunch of Egyptian things. Matter of fact, uh, Washington Monument or uh, Washington Washington Square. It, it's after the uh, uh, Kabbalah, the the Syria from tree. You can, you can literally say right now, United States of America is Sodom, Gomorrah, and Egypt. Notice that their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. Dear friends, the greatest disgrace that can be perpetrated upon an enemy is to leave his body unburied in a public place, and watch it slowly decompose. And think about this. At this time, this will be politically correct. This will be morally appropriate. My, how civilized we have become over the years. How sophisticated and moral we are. Yes, indeed, the world is getting better. Is it really? We ask ourselves. We'll pick this up next week as we continue our study on these two witnesses over there in Israel. As I close out this morning, I can't help but go into Acts chapter 1 verse 8. The Messiah, talking to his disciples, he says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. After the cross and the resurrection, the Lord Yeshua Messiah taught his disciples for 40 days before he ascended to the Father. One of his strategic messages of preparation concerned the Holy Spirit enablement that they would need to fulfill their ministry. You shall, take notice what he says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. After this vital promise was given, Yeshua Messiah was taken up into heaven to the right hand of the Father. Ten days later, on the day of Pentecost, this promise was fulfilled by the outpouring of the Spirit. And they were all filled with the Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 2:4. The grand result of this empowering would be the spread of the gospel, region by region. Throughout the entire world, 
You shall be a witness to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Their success is documented in scriptures. The religious opposition admitted that Jerusalem was promptly reached. Did we not strictly command you not to teach in his name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. There in Acts 5.28. Soon thereafter, Judea was being touched. At that time, a great persecution arose, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. Acts 8, 1 and verse 4. Next, the message of Yeshua entered Samaria. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached the Messiah to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip. There in Acts chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. And finally, folks, the gospel of grace poured out around the world. The word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it also in all the world. Colossians 1, verses 5 and 6. This worldwide outreach was astounding development. Considering the unimpressive human credentials that characterized Yeshua Messiah's followers, now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Yeshua Messiah. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. The explanation of their effectiveness was contained in the last phrase. You see, these men had spent time with Yeshua Messiah. They had been impacted by him and were now walking in the spiritual strength of his spirit. Folks, listen up. In order for any disciple, then or now, to be effective, to be an effective demonstration of the reality of the risen, the risen Messiah, they must live by power of the Holy Spirit. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Almighty, my strength. Father, I ask in the name of Yeshua Messiah, make my life a daily witness. Therefore, I can declare the word, the deed, the attitude that Yeshua Messiah is alive. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, my own abilities will never be sufficient to accomplish this. So I come to you humbly praying. I ask you, empower me by your Holy Spirit, Lord. Father, as you filled the, the building there on that day of Pentecost, and they witnessed that outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Father, I ask that we witness this outpouring of the Holy Spirit once again. Allow the Holy Spirit to pour out that grace upon the listeners this morning, Father. That they can go out 
and, and, and preach the gospel. Be a testimony of Yeshua Messiah. Proclaiming the good news that he's alive. Dear Heavenly Father. Saving souls. That's what it's all about. Saving souls. Together, Lord. We can do this. We can save the souls. But we need the Holy Spirit to help us. That divine energy. That power that comes from the, the King of Kings. The throne of heavens from you. Where the saints are up there circling around. How long, O oh Lord? How long? Father, only you know the time. But Father, as you delay, we still have a purpose on this earth. And that's to go out and reach those souls. Teach those souls. Bring those souls from the darkness into the light. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that, Father. Thank you for touching now, even this morning, touching the hearts that are listening this morning, Father. Thank you so much. In the name of Yeshua Messiah, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Great I Am, the Alpha and the Omega, the Et. We say thank you for all things, Father. Amen. Amen. I thank you guys so much for tuning in this morning. Honor and a privilege to be here with you each and every Sunday morning. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact me. You can either call me or you can text me. My phone number is 1-302-299-2701. That's 302-299-2701.